Okay. So as we begin tonight, we first need to get a little bit of the lay of the land. So we just have tonight, and then we have next week. And that's it for a study of Exodus. So all these details that we've been discussing about the tabernacle and the priesthood, they've been in chapters 25 through 31. So that's a lot of chapters that we've covered. We've covered a lot of ground. And then, uh, as you'll notice this week in your study, the last six chapters, 35 through 40, basically repeat all of those details again. It's the same thing. It just repeats it because Moses is trying to tell us we did this exactly as God told us to do this. That was the point. They were supposed to do it exactly. So all these details are going to repeat themselves in those last six chapters, except for the last chapter. Um, There's more there with God's glory. So in between, we get the story of the golden calf in this section, chapters 32 through 40. It's kind of sandwiched in there. This is when Israel breaks their covenant vow with God. Moses intercedes and mediates on their behalf. And then God graciously is going to give them another chance to enter into that covenant relationship with him. So as I was working through these three chapters, there was again just so much detail. And I just felt really overwhelmed with all the details. I thought, they're never going to come back because I'm going to overwhelm them with so many details. It's just too much. And I asked the Lord to give me a word, and I went and did my dishes, and we're just like, sometimes you just got to do things. Like, you pray, and then you just got to go do something. And I was just working in the kitchen, and the word hope came to my mind, and I was like, hope. Okay, is that the word? And I went back to my Bible, and I started looking, and everywhere I was looking, it was like, hope. Yes, this is filled with hope. So tonight is all about hope. But in order to really see why we need that hope and understand how precious that hope is, we first have to look at our sinfulness. We have to start there. That's where we start in chapter 32. So I'm actually going to read chapter 32. We'll read it pretty quickly. Um, But I think it's really important for us to actually set the scene here for what is going on. So chapter 32, verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed, and I am reading in the CSB, so it may not sound exactly like ESV or NIV, but look at my Bible. This is where I sat, like this is where I dwelt this week, and it just felt so familiar to me that I was like, I can't read it out of a different Bible. Like, I have to read it out of this one. So, okay. When the people saw that Moses delayed in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said to him, Come, make gods for us who will go before us because this Moses... The man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Aaron replied to them, Take off the gold rings that are on the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the gold rings that were on their ears and brought them to Aaron. He took the gold from them, fashioned it with an engraving tool, and made it into an image of a calf. Then they said, Israel, These are your gods who brought you up from the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, I think he was like, "Uh uh-oh, i got to fix this. He built an altar in front of it and made an announcement. There will be a festival to the Lord tomorrow. Early the next morning, they arose, offered burnt offerings, and presented fellowship offerings. The people sat down to eat and drink and got up to party. And that whatever your phrase is there, that getting up to party is really very lewd sexual behavior. So this is quite the party that is going on. It is not just a tea party. (laughs) The Lord spoke to Moses. (laughs) 
go down at once, says the Lord. I love that there's an exclamation point there. If God was texting that, he would have put like three exclamation points. For your people, notice how he calls them your people. You brought up from the land of Egypt. Hmm, it's interesting. Have acted corruptly. They have quickly turned from the way I commanded them. They have made for themselves an image of a calf. They have bowed down to it, sacrificed to it, and said, Israel, these are your gods who brought you up from the land of Egypt. That right there is proof that God is listening to every word that we say. The Lord also said to Moses, I have seen this people, and they are indeed a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger can burn against them and I can destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. Lord, why, do you, why does your anger burn against your people? You brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and strong hand. Why should the Egyptians say, he brought them out with an evil intent to kill them in the mountains and eliminate them from the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger and relent concerning this disaster planned for your people. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. You swore to them by yourself and declared, I will make your offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky and will give your offspring all this land that I have promised, and they will inherit it forever. So the Lord relented concerning the disaster he had said he would bring on the people. Then Moses turned and went down the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hands. They were inscribed on both sides, inscribed front and back. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was God's writing, engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the sound, I love Joshua. He's so innocent in all of this. He's just been hanging out on the mountain. When he hears it, he's like, hey, that's the sound of war in the camp. But Moses replies, verse 18, it's not the sound of a victory cry and not the sound of a cry of defeat. I hear the sound of singing. As he approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses became enraged and threw the tablets out of his hands, smashing them at the base of the mountain. That is symbolic of the shattering of this relationship. He shatters them. That, that covenant relationship was completely shattered. He took the calf they had made, burned it up, and ground it to powder. He scattered the powder over the surface of the water and forced the Israelites to drink the water. Now, I would love to know how he forced them to drink the water. I don't know, but it's, like, these are grown people, and he, somehow he forces them to drink the water, but maybe you just listen to your leader. Not really sure. Then Moses asked Aaron, what did these people do to you that you have led them into such a grave sin? Don't be enraged, my lord, Aaron replied. You yourself know that the people are intent on evil. They said to me, make gods for us who will go before us because this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. So I said to them, whoever has gold, take it off. And they gave it to me. When I threw it into the fire, out came this calf. Line. I know. And he's like, what is like 85 years old? And, you know, he's lying about a calf jumping out of fire. He should know better by then. Moses, <laughs> Moses saw that the people were out of control. 
For Aaron had let them get out of control. Notice where the blame lies. Making them a laughingstock to their enemies. And Moses stood at the camp's entrance and said, Whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the Levites gathered around him. He told them, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Every man fasten his sword to his side. Go back and forth through the camp from every from entrance to entrance, and each of you kill his brother, his friend, and his neighbor. Levites did as Moses commanded, and about 3,000 men fell dead that day among the people. Afterward, Moses said, Today you have been dedicated to the Lord, speaking to the Levites there. Since each man went against his son and his brother, therefore you have brought a blessing on yourselves today. The following day, Moses said to the people, You have committed a grave sin. Now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I will be able to atone for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Oh, these people have committed a grave sin. They have made a god of gold for themselves. Now if you would only forgive their sin, but if not... Please erase me from the book you have written. The Lord replied to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will erase from my book. Now go, lead the people to the place I told you about. See, my angel will go before you. But on the day I settle accounts, I will hold them accountable for their sin. And the Lord inflicted a plague on the people for what they did with the calf Aaron had made. Okay. We're not going to read any more because that would take up too much time. In chapter 33, though, um, is when we see that God tells them he will also no longer go up with them. His presence is not going to go. Then we get a, a beautiful conversation between God and Moses. We get to see a little bit of that. And then in chapter 34 is when we have God's glory passing in front of Moses. God declares his name, and God so graciously reinstates the covenant. Okay, so we're going to try to get to all that. But let's talk about these people a little bit in chapter 32. It did not take very long, less than six weeks, for the people to clearly and specifically break the first and second commandments, which are, what are the first and second commandments? That's not be word for word. What's the first one? Yeah, no other gods. And the second one is? That's right. Don't bow down. Don't make any idols. Yes. So it didn't take them long to break, but probably the most two important, number one and number two. So much for thinking that miracles are the key to faith, right? Because these people had seen a ton of miracles, and yet here they were cheating on God already. It's not miracles that are going to give us faith at all. So the first big picture that really develops here is that humanity, us, we have to include ourselves, we're humans, is severely prone to idolatry. We just are. And I think it's okay to go ahead and admit that. Like, we in here are severely prone to idolatry. It's okay, we can go ahead and say that. Our hearts are just prone to wander anywhere and everywhere else but God. We may not have a metal idol, we may not have a golden calf in our backyard, but I bet all of us probably have some sort of mental one or some sort of dream or something that we elevate above our desire for God, something that tends to get in the way. Whatever that thing is, that is idolatry. It just is. 
And I'm not saying idolatry is okay. I'm saying it's okay to admit we are all idolaters. We are. Um, what we need to watch out for when you really want to stop and think about it is that we aren't worshiping created things. That's what it comes down to. We want to worship the creator and not the created things. So you can think about the categories there. Am I worshiping a created thing or am I truly worshiping the creator? Which is actually your first principle tonight. Idolatry, in very simple terms, idolatry is loving created things more than the creator. Idolatry is loving created things more than the creator. Idolatry is loving created things more than the creator. Romans 1.25 addresses this, and it tells us that we exchange the truth for a lie when we worship created things instead of the creator. You're exchanging truth for a lie when we chase those wrong things, when we think that something else is going to satisfy us other than God, when we think some sort of dream is better than God, or money is better than God, or whatever it might be. I have things that get in my way that trip me up, and you guys have things that get in your way that trip you up also. It's good to identify those in our lives. It's good to think, this for me is hard. It's even good, I would say, to share that with a friend and be like, this, this is my struggle. We all have struggles, and you know, the more alienated we are, um, the easier it is, I think, for the enemy to uh, overwhelm us in that struggle. But when we share it, when we can find help with that, and the body of Christ, you know, not to tell that, you don't have to stand up front of the congregation, but, you know, there, there is support in that, right? Um, and sometimes even just naming it, whatever, whatever it might be. But this is us in our flesh. We are idolaters. Now, I, I, wanted, I want you guys to notice something here. Go back to verse 1 of chapter 32. What is the catalyst of their idolatry? Like, what, what started it all? He wasn't there. He wasn't there. Impatience. Impatience. Yes. Moses took too long. They did not like waiting. Impatience and waiting was the catalyst to this whole thing. They got tired of waiting. Impatience, you guys, often leads to foolishness. Just us. It's led to foolishness in my own life. When the people saw that Moses was delayed or so long in coming down, they gathered around Aaron. And the idea of gathering around Aaron is that they gathered forcibly. So I want to give them a little slack. You know, like they could have gotten a little aggressive, you know. And that's maybe one reason why he gave in to them. But the people got tired of waiting. That gets us in trouble. We don't like waiting. I don't like waiting in lines. I don't like waiting at the grocery store. I don't like when we're on vacation and there's a traffic jam and we have to wait on the interstate. It's ruining my time. You know, whatever it is, waiting is not fun. But we specifically don't like waiting for God to answer a prayer request. We do not like waiting on God to do something. We often think that our timing is best and we've got things figured out and waiting is really hard to do. Abraham did not wait well for the child God promised him. 
him, so we're ham, him, so we're not alone. He didn't wait well. Jacob did not wait well for God's promise that the older would serve the younger. He had that promise. He didn't have to go and try and trick everything himself. He didn't wait. He didn't wait on God. And there are many generations of Israelites that didn't wait well either. They did not wait for the promised Messiah. Waiting requires trust, and trusting God looks like faithful waiting. Ever thought, what if, how do I trust God? You wait faithfully. You keep doing what God's put in front of you to do, and you keep waiting. That's trust. Now, this is interesting, though. Jump with me to verse 8. And look at things from God's perspective. What did God say? What, what's the first, like, three words of that sentence? They have, your just says turned. Okay, yeah, mine says quickly. They have quickly turned from the way. So that's interesting, right? Israel, Israel saw things as, this is taking too long. I'm, we're tired of waiting. God sees this as, um, they are very quick to turn away from me. So what Israel saw as too long, God saw as very quick. You guys, the Israelites made a wrong assumption based on timing. They assumed wrong that Moses wasn't coming back, or this guy wasn't coming back. Think about this for just a minute, <clears throat> though. The Israelites, what do you think they had received that morning? Manna. That's jaw-dropping. We stopped. I never thought about that. Like, it just never dawned on me through all of this that manna was falling every single morning. So that morning. They had had evidence that God was still with them from the manna. We cannot assume God's lack of involvement in our life just because it looks like God is taking too long. Instead, we need to look for the evidence that he's still there. But I think a lot of times we grow numb to God's provision. We just kind of like, you know, it's just there every day. And so we don't really think about the fact that the sun came up again today. That's God's provision. And I have breath in my lungs. And that I have food on the table. Um, you know, all of I'm standing here. Like, all of that is God's provision. We have, we have daily evidence right now that God is with us. And yet, it is so easy to think that he is not when we're waiting for something. And we don't see an answer to that. And that is when we can take really foolish actions, like the Israelites did, for example. And go and just try and do it ourselves. Or fix it ourselves. we got to take care of this right now. That's where we get into trouble. <clears throat> so I want to encourage you guys that if you are waiting for something, I want to encourage you to keep waiting well. I, the Christian life really is all about waiting. If you stop to think about it, all of the uh, saints that have gone before us, listed in Hebrews 11, it tells us in that chapter they're still waiting. They're still waiting for, the, for God to fulfill all that he had promised them. So the Christian life, we're, we're waiting right now for Christ's return. We're waiting for that hope that we have to become real and be evident in front of us. Like, it is just all about waiting. But we do have a promise. If waiting is something that you've been having to deal with right now, John 5, 17 is one of my favorite verses. Jesus says, my father is still working and I am working also. I love that verse. I love the simplicity of it. John 5, 17, my father is still working and I am working also. He's still working. 
We just can't see it. It's just not happening in our timing, but he is working. He's doing so much more than we could ever ask or imagine. I tell you guys, I mean, even from my own experiences, it is truly a tangled mess that we weave when we decide that we can't wait any longer. When we decide, just, no, I gotta take care of this right now. And yet the Lord says to us in Lamentations 3.25 that he is good to those who wait for him, to the person who seeks him. He is good. He is good to those who wait for him. There is goodness there. Now, let's talk a little bit about Aaron. It's quite the character study. What was he thinking? That's what I was thinking. I know, me too. Um, but if you said they were forceful, okay, then, I, then I'm sure. But it was his idea to get the gold and turn it into something. Like, he, he like, took it beyond their expression. Sure. Um, you know, he kind of just reminded him, like, hey, remember what God did for us here? Yes. Yeah, he, was very, he was very impulsive. He mm-hmm. just like they complained, and then he said, "Okay, I'm gonna do this." Yes. Try to appease them. Like, yes. It was the first time, as far as we know, that they came to him, and it yeah, it really yeah. hadn't been that long. Like if, right. if he had kept saying it and kept saying it, and it was like Moses had been up there for like five years. <laughs> no, right? <laughs> then maybe, but. <laughs> Okay, then I can see taking off the jewelry. Like, <laughs> like, it's like a month, you know? and he's like, oh, yeah, and uh, give me your gold, and we'll make an idol. I know. I have no answers. It's flabbergasting, really. That's why I was like, the only thing I can come up with is that we're just so prone to idolatry, which is, that is just who we are without God. I don't know what he was thinking. It, it seems like he just feared the people a lot more than he feared God. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe he feared for his life. Uh, if they were being really aggressive, it would have been interesting to know how the story had would have been different if most like if Aaron had prayed, yeah, and been like, Lord, what do I do? That would have been such an interesting, you know, that would have been a Lord, that would have been a cool story. <laughs> Not what we got. <laughs> so there's something else here for us. Proverbs twenty nine twenty five says that the fear of man is a snare, and it really is. We just. We, we have a lot of things, especially in our society right now, that we could be fearful of. Like, a lot of stuff going on in our government, in our world. And yet, if we let that take control of us, the fear of man truly is a snare. <coughs> like, it is not, it's not going to be helpful to go down that road. I think we will start idolizing other things um, and the wrong things if we go down that road. I find it really interesting. I think he started to like backpedal a little bit in verse 5 when he tried to build an altar, or he did build an altar, and then declare that the next day would be a festival to the Lord. Like, you know, I think he's like, oh boy, what did I do here? And then just trying to fix things a little bit. But the interesting thing with that is you can never make sin more acceptable. You know, he's just trying to make it more acceptable. But we do this too. Uh, so it's hard for me to point the finger at him. You know, I was trying to think of examples. You know, we say, oh, it's just a little lie. Mm-hmm. Or someone might even say, it's just, I, just, I just look at pornography a little bit. It's just a little bit. You know, you just try and make it more acceptable. It's just a small addiction. I could, I could stop at any time. You know, it's just something that I, I do sometimes. You know, we try and make it more acceptable. Uh, one thing I read is that the, the bowl is actually a cultural 
image of paganism in multiple countries of that time. So the bull, I think it was Apis, was the name of the god in Egypt. And then also the bull is worshipped in Canaan, where they are going. So he's really kind of taking like the culture around them and then trying to mix it in with what God had told them to do. And what's interesting is that he doesn't make a bull, he makes a calf. Mm -hmm. So is he trying to make a lesser offense? I don't know. But, you know, it's interesting that he makes a calf, like, you know, the mighty calf. Instead. <laughs> you would think maybe he would have chosen the bull, but he's trying to not quite be like the world, but yet still we could really make some, I think, some uh, application from that. You know, when we try and mix in what's going on culturally with church or make, make our own thing, it doesn't work. I think, too, we can stand up for who people for the Lord yes. is. You know, where it's easier to just, like, okay, I'll just, like you said, you can erase it. Like, yeah, it's so much easier, even for us. It's so much easier just to be like, uh, yeah, God accepts homosexuality instead of being like, that is a sin. You know, instead of naming it and having to stand up for that in culture. That would be a great example for us today. Some of us eventually might come into a situation where you have to call it sin. And we don't want to have to do that because there might be name calling or people may not like us or whatever it might be. So I think we can kind of bring that down to our level. Um, then in verse 22, if you jump down there, he tries to pass the blame on the people. He's like, you yourself know the people are intent on evil. It's these people, which reminded me so much of Adam. Yes, Adam and Eve. You know, he's like, well, this is, you gave me this woman, you know. <laughs> She's the one that did it. And the woman's like, whatever, it's the serpent's fault. You know, like, we're always trying to just pass it off on somebody else. If you read in between the lines, it also makes it sound like he's trying to blame Moses. You took a long time. <laughs> you took too long. He's kind of like, it's not, it is not my fault. And then the ultimate of, it's not my fault. The calf just jumped out of the fire. Yeah, was he like trying to blame God? <laughs> that is such because, a like, good point. I think on some level he, like, he would know that it doesn't seem like he actually believes in other gods. And so, right. like, if he thought he was really telling the truth, then to me, that's like, he's trying to cast a blame on God. Like, that's the only way a calf would come out of the fire. Did you read my notes? No. That sounds like I have right here in big, big, big black lettering. We blame God. <laughs> we either blame others or sometimes we blame God. I'm going to give you a couple examples. I might step on some toes. If only you'd give me blank, then I'd be happy. That's like blaming God. You know, like, if I don't have this, it's your fault you didn't give it to me. I don't have it. You have to give it to me, so it's your fault. That's the implication behind that, that God is holding out on us. Well, if you would just do this for me, Lord, life would be so much easier. So the implication is, because he's not doing it for you, that he's making life really hard on you, and it's all his fault. You know, like, we do that, too. We blame it. always do something else. Yeah. It's true. And there's always, there's always another idol. There's always something else to chase. Always another. When this one doesn't satisfy, we just choose another one. You know, we realize, oh, that didn't do it. 
my new house didn't do it for me. And so now, I don't mean that. <laughs> no, 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 that's exactly I what I'm thinking, myself. though, is like we just started finishing the basement. And mm -hmm. when we, that house is so much better than the house that we had before. But now all of a sudden, I'm like, we're, we're short of room. Like, this house just needs one more room. Mm. Why don't we have, why don't we look for a house with another room? Like, why? Yeah. This yeah. house is everything that we wanted. Yeah. Until yeah. now, like, almost a year later, and there's always something else. There is always something else. Yeah. Things. It's just a, a room is just a thing, another thing that I want. Yes. And yes. Every time I get my car, I have started thanking the Lord for my minivan. <laughs> I wanted my car, but I'm like, no, I'm, it doesn't matter. I'm not going to, like, idolize and cover other people's cars that are so much nicer than mine. I'm going to get in my van <laughs> that takes two times to start. I'm going to say thank you. <laughs> Almost every morning now. I hit the start, and it's a push-button start, and it like tries, and then it dies, and the kids are all like, yeah! <laughs> I'm like, oh, wait for it. Like, guys, we can walk to school if we really have to. You're going. But I get my little finger on there, like, second time. Okay, it worked. <laughs> Thank you, Lord, for my little red minivan. Have you noticed, I don't know if you've noticed, Annie, that not a lot of people our age drive red minivans. I know. <laughs> Mine's even older than yours. And so I'm like, yes, I'm feeling you. <laughs> yes. We're like, David's like, let's just get five more years into our band. I know. We'll see. We'll see. We'll see. <laughs> I don't know. I know. We keep thinking the same thing, and now it's Aiden's turn. Aiden's going to get a car. And his car will probably be nicer than my car. So, again, I'm just going to have to get a car. Thank you, Lord, for my van. We're going to say it together. The maroon, the maroon color, though, isn't as popular anymore. Like, it used to be. Yeah. I know. We're well, usually, if it's not Annie that I see at Aldi, if I see other people like driving around Kokomo, they're like 75 years old. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't it so true? It is. <laughs> I'm like, my Jump to verse 25. 25 tells us that the blame, though, no matter, like, we have all these excuses. I've totally ruined you over here. We have all these excuses, right? It's everybody else's fault. Aaron wants to blame everybody else, and yet God knows exactly where the blame lies, and it does lie with Aaron. Moses saw that the people were out of control. Look what it says. For Aaron had let them get out of control. Aaron had let them get out of control. And if you jump to the very last few words of the chapter, the chapter ends with the calf Aaron had made. So that's kind of striking, too. He had tried to say it just jumped out. But we know that he got an engraving tool. Verse 4 tells us that. And then just the way the chapter ends, it's like the, the blame very clearly lies with Aaron. He messed up big time. There's just kind of no way around it. Here is what I love about that, though. If you think God can't use you because of a past sin, Aaron is proof that God still can and still will and is still willing to. Like, we're the ones that put ourselves on the sidelines because we think we messed up too much or we think that this struggle was too much. How can I go and be, um, you know, minister to somebody else? It's our own excuses that then hinder our privilege 
of working for God's kingdom because he still uses broken people because we are all broken people. Aaron is just a great example of who we really are apart from God. But that's all of us, and he's still willing to use all of us. So that's really what I absolutely love about Aaron. Don't sideline yourself because of some past sin. Let God use it. Like, first of all, let him mold you with it, you know? Talk to him about it, but then maybe you can help somebody else. And it doesn't mean that you're disqualified from any type of ministry. I am blown away that here Aaron is leading them in idolatry, and God is going to clothe him in all of that beautiful clothing that we talked about last week. That's amazing. That he didn't choose somebody else. I would have chosen somebody else. And he, he did not. <laughs> That's pretty cool. And it says a lot about who God is and his graciousness and his mercy. And he is more than gracious and mercy with all of us. Not just Aaron, all of us. Now, none of this has been very hopeful so far. And I told you we were going to talk about hope. <laughs> so we have to get a little bit farther. All right, let's talk about Moses, okay? Moses, what stood out to you guys about Moses in these chapters, if you were able to read all of them or, or just from chapter 32. I think the first thing that stood out to me was just how much he has grown. Mm-hmm. I mean, from yes. the beginning of this whole process with Israel, and I think you know, he didn't yeah. want to speak to the Pharaoh, and now, now he's even talk, like, not talking back to God, but he is saying, like, yes. wanting to intercede, and I think in the first Moses would have just been like, mm-hmm. yes. you know, just like a child with, you know, Absolutely. Versus, you know, trying to be Absolutely. You really see the sanctification process exemplified in Moses' life. When you look at where he came from and you look at where he is now, that is a result of God's presence and God's work in his life. All of it. It's just, it's, it's so, that's hope right there. Like God's taking all of us through that process and we can all get to that end result. You know, if God can do it with Moses, who didn't want to talk at all, he can do it with anyone. I love that, Jenna. What else? Um, anything else stick out to you guys about his mediation, about how anything he said or? Just how he's willing to take the fall with him. That really struck me. And I'm like, you know, I, I would hope that I would too, but I mean, at that time, standing there in front of God, I, you know, you really easy to blame the other people yes yes I mean it's it's amazing God actually offers to make a new people out of Moses I would have taken that deal (laughs) I'd be like done like let me go get my wife (laughs) we'll get this party started I'm kind of sick of these people (laughs) but he does not, it doesn't even seem like it phases him. He doesn't even think about it. There is not one selfish thought in Moses through any of this. It's completely selfless. Uh, if you look, well, first of all, I love that God says in verse 10, leave me alone. Leave me alone. And Moses does not leave him alone. He does the exact opposite. Verse 11, but Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. He goes and talks to him about it, and he has these fantastic arguments that are not focused on himself 
at all. What does Mo Moses focus on in that prayer, verses 11 through 13? What, what are his arguments? His promise to the patriarchs. Yes, he brings that up. Oh, the Lord loves it when we bring up his promises to him. He loves it. And then it was like he didn't want the Egyptians to get yeah. to say, yes. look at your people and look, you know, you rescued them and now yes. look at Yes, so he, exactly. So he reminds him, wait, he's like, wait a minute, you call these people my people, but these are your people that you brought out of Egypt. This is your reputation that is at stake with the Egyptians. You don't want to, remember you did all of this so they could know who you are. And then they're going to think something false about you if you just destroy these people. And the third argument then was his promise, God's promise. So he's all about God's people, God's reputation, and God's promise. He is not concerned about his own reputation at all. Now, I probably have been like, Lord, if you don't do something with these people, it's really going to hurt my reputation. You know, like, we tend to make it all about us. I was so struck by this prayer, and I, it is, don't get me wrong, it is a-okay to bring all of our, all of our wants and desires and prayer requests to God. He wants us to bring everything. But it struck me, and I thought, if I came to the Lord more focused on, like, his kingdom and his reputation and his glory and his people, I wonder if I would see a lot more answers to prayer. Probably. Instead of just, I'm usually, I'm so focused on me and what's going on with me. It was kind of a challenge to myself to really think about praying, thy will be done and thy kingdom come. And, Lord, how can your glory you know, be um, in my house today? How can your glory be in wherever I go today and just really be concerned with God's reputation? I might see some really cool answers even that day, which would be so fun. Now, the cool thing is that as a result of this intercession, what does God do in verse 14? He changes his mind. He relents. Now, we know, thanks to Pastor Craig yesterday, that God is not does not really change his mind. He gave us that verse, Numbers 23, 19. When he said that, I was like, oh, this fits so perfectly. Numbers 23, 19 says, God is not a man that he should lie or the son of man that he should change his mind. So why do you think it's written like that then? Why do you think God wrote it like this so it looks like he relents? So it looks like he changes his mind. Any thoughts as to why he would put it that way? He knew all along what he was going to do. I think so too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, to see that sanctification, mm -hmm. to see that, um, and the, the example also then for us to be able to see that. It, it also like is a foreshadowing of the grace of Jesus. Yes, because um, the people deserved God's wrath, but exactly. He showed grace instead. That's exactly right. The big picture idea here is is exactly that. The, it's a foreshadowing of the mediation that Christ does for us. So <clears throat> while it's amazing to me that Moses, as a sinful man, is being so selfless, it's so cool that it, it's such a beautiful picture of Christ, 
who mediates for us. And we really see that in verses 30 through 32 in this chapter when Moses says, you have committed a grave sin. And then he says, now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I will be able to atone for your sin. So here we have a mediator trying to go and atone for the people's sin. That is absolutely a foreshadowing of Christ right there. Uh, And then Moses goes and he actually says, now if you would only forgive their sin, but if not, please erase me from the book that you have written. The idea behind that, as far as I've read, is me instead. He's offering himself in place of these people that tried to murder him or wanted to kill him just months ago, not that long ago. That is a great example of Christ. And it's Romans 5, 7, and 8 is what it is. Romans 5, 7, and 8 says that very rarely will someone die for a good person, let alone a bunch of evildoers, right? Yet that is exactly what Moses was willing to do and what Christ did. For God showed his love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, giving his life in our place. It's pretty cool. That's the big picture behind all of Moses' mediation, is how he exemplifies Jesus. The difference is, while Moses' mediation could not actually atone for the people's sins, Christ can't. That's the big difference there. And there is our hope. There is one of the big hope, like paint a picture right there. Jesus's mediation does atone for our sins. We have a mediator that can blot out our sins so our names don't have to be blotted out. Our sins are actually blotted out instead of our names. And that's your next principle. Christ's mediation blots out our sins instead of our names. Christ's mediation blots out our sins instead of our names. Christ's mediation blots out our sins instead of our names. That is amazing. And that is so hope-filled. No matter what you've done in the past, no matter what you do in the future, his intercession, his mediation on our behalf blots out all of your sins. As though they are all gone. I love Colossians 2.14. It says, He erased our certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us by nailing it to the cross. He erased it. He erased our certificate of debt. So there's that idea of blotting out our sins. Because God says here, you know, I will, where does that, the Lord replied to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will erase from my book. Doesn't have to be that that way though with Christ as our mediator. It's pretty cool. Any thoughts on that? More thoughts on his, Moses' mediation? We'll come back to that a little bit here. I was just thinking too, like, as as Moses gets more confident with the Lord because he's with them, I think that is a great picture too of us. Like yeah. the more time we spend in front of him and focus on him, how more confident we are to share the kingdom or be the kingdom. For sure. So I'm just encouraged by that too. Yes, absolutely. I love that. The more time we spend with him, the more we're gonna be like him, the more our prayer requests are gonna be more focused on him. Like it all just kind of shine his light, but maybe not our liberty. Well, 
about that today as I was grocery shopping. Every Monday during Bible study, uh, my routine is that I go over my lesson and then I go grocery shopping. And so I try and be so friendly and like just because I'm like, I've just been with Jesus for like an hour and a half. If I don't have some joy, what is wrong with me? You know, like I've been spending time with the Lord. And so I try to be different than everybody else or just friendly, just talk to people. And I don't know if people notice the difference, but I hope they do. You know, I hope that I, that we, you know, after being with the Lord, we'll go out and radiate with the glory of God so that other people can see it in us. That's what, that's really what it's all about. Now there's a verse in Ezekiel, just write down Ezekiel 22, 30. And this is long after, in Ezekiel, this is long after I, I believe that Israel, you know, they've gone way astray. And um, I believe the northern kingdom has already been taken. I don't know if the southern kingdom has already gone into exile. But God says in Ezekiel 22, 30, I searched for a man among them who would repair the wall and stand in the gap. So the idea here is it's all rubble. And he, God is searching for a man to stand in the gap before me on behalf of the land so that I might not destroy it. But I found no one. And several of the commentaries that I read kept referencing this verse because Moses really stood in the gap. Mm-hmm. Stood in the gap. And that is what Jesus does for us. That he's the ultimate one who has stood in the gap. And I thought that verse was just really fitting for Moses' mediation here and Christ. Now, even though he stood in the gap, there were still consequences, though. I think that's the thing. Like, you know, we are saved. Christ has stood in the gap for us, but there's still consequences for our sins. We still might have to, you know, deal with some of those. So they had to deal with some consequences here. Uh, The first consequence that they had to deal with was drinking the powdered water. So... I don't know what that was like. I don't know if it made him sick. It doesn't really talk much about it. The only thing I could kind of come up with, and I don't know if I'm reading too much into it, but I thought it was super fascinating that in Deuteronomy 9, when Moses is recounting this whole story, he says that the water was a stream running down from the mountain. And so if you think about the mountain being God's throne, it made me think of Revelation 22 because there it tells us that there's a river of water of life flowing from the throne of God. And so I thought it was kind of cool that there was this river flowing down the mountain and we know there's a river flowing one day. There'll be a river flowing from God's throne. And so maybe you see some symbolism there of their polluting, you know, this life that God wants to give us. They're just polluting what um, had once been free of sin. I don't know. But kind of, I didn't find a whole lot about that. No one really, I don't think, knows much about it. Um, any thoughts on the powdered water? Yeah, I don't know. It's, but that's consequence number one. What's the second one? What's the second thing he had the Levites do? Kill a bunch of people. And it's so sad, like, just to see, like, your brother, your friend, your neighbor. It didn't matter who they were. And I don't know, I don't know how this scene plays out. You know, I mean, it says that the people are out of control, and then Moses stands at one of the entrances and he calls for whoever's on the Lord's side to come to him. So, did the Levites who came to him then was there still partying going on? 
and they go out and just slash 3,000 people in the middle of all of their, you know, revelry, mm-hmm. everything that was going on. We don't, I don't know. It's not like they probably all stopped and looked at Moses, you know, mm-hmm. and then he sent the Levites out. And it seems harsh to us, I know, um, but this is God keeping his word. If we think back to the law, what was the penalty for idolatry? Death. Death is a penalty for idolatry. That's in Exodus 22, 20. So this is simply God keeping his word to them that death would result. It seems very quick, like, okay, who's with me? If yeah. you're with the Lord, step this way and then yeah. and go. If not, then yeah. it just seems quick. And maybe that was how he put all the partying. If the people are out of control, right. maybe that's how he got control of the situation was all of a sudden there were 3,000 men that had been killed among the people. Yeah. We don't like thinking, I don't like thinking about those parts, but that's all part of it. Uh, then it says that God afflicts a plague on the people. Mm-hmm. We, have, we have no details about that either. We don't know what kind of a plague it was. If the people just got sick, if some of them died, it doesn't really give us any examples there. Sick from drinking the water. Yeah, maybe it's sick from drinking the water. Maybe it's diarrhea. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) It would be horrible. Oh, man. That would definitely be a plague. The last thing God says is, what's the last big consequence that's then referenced in chapter 33? I mentioned it earlier. God will no longer go with them. So his, the lack of his presence is a very big consequence. And Moses was going to have none of that. Right? He was like, nuh you are coming with us. And I think the reason is because he knows the promised land without the one who promised it is not worth having. Now, I don't know if I would have been that wise. You know, I could totally see myself being like, oh, it stinks. But at least we have milk and honey. You know, like, at least we're going to have pomegranates and grapes and this great land. But Moses is like, no. It is not worth having those blessings if we do not have the Lord. So I have to ask an honest question there. Uh, What do we desire more? Do we desire God or do we desire God's blessings? That is a hard question to come face to face with. Do we desire God or do we desire his blessings more? Desiring God's blessings more than God is idolatry. That's idolatry too. And I have had times in my life where I am just asking him for his blessings more than I am asking him for himself. And yet he's the greatest blessing there is. That's a hard lesson to learn, but a very fruitful one when I can get it through my thick head that he's really all I need. He's really the greatest blessing that there is. Moses understood this, that God was the greatest blessing there could be for these people. He knew it better than anyone else, I think, because he had been experiencing it. He had been in God's presence a lot, days, weeks on end, and he knew he was not going to allow them to lose this. So look at verse 15 in chapter 33. He says to the Lord in this very intimate conversation that they're having, if your presence does not go, Moses responded to him, don't make us go up from here. 
you're not going to go with us, Lord. Don't make us go up from here. How will it be known that I and your people have found favor with you unless you go with us? I and your people will be distinguished by this from all the other people on the face of the earth. Only by God would they be distinguished. Only by God. Moses is fighting for God's presence. Sometimes we need to fight for God's presence in our own lives. Like, get up a little bit earlier or whatever it might be. Fight for God's presence in your life. For that time with him, <clears throat> for that worship with him, that time is worth fighting for. Now, how does God respond then in verse 17? Okay. okay. Yeah. I will do it. I will do everything that you've asked. You guys, if this is how God responds to Moses' intersection, intercession, I can't say that word, on behalf of these idolatrous people, how much more is he going to give an ear to Jesus, his own son who intercedes on our behalf? That's what's pictured here. Moses said, uh, God says, yeah, okay, I'll do it. How much more is he going to say that to Christ? So we see here Moses asking for all the right things, which is also a picture of Jesus, not asking anything for himself, very selfless. We see God agreeing to it. And then just that hope. There's that hope again. How much more is our mediator, who is the actual son of God, going to have the ear of God? So much more. So much more. Go, jump back up to verse 11 of chapter 33. <clears throat> How does verse 11 say that God would speak to Moses? Face to face, as a man speaks to a friend, right? Face-to-face -face as a man speaks to a friend. So the idea behind this is that it was not dreams and visions that Moses was having. It was intimate conversation. It was communication that was happening. And it is, again, a picture of Christ. Who has face-to-face -face conversations with God? Jesus does. That's what that is foreshadowing for us. Israel's mediator had face-to-face -face conversations with God because our mediator has face-to-face -face conversations with God. There's that hope again. That's hope right there. Every day, they are face-to-face. -face. <clears throat> now, we know that Moses, though, is a sinful man. And also, when we keep reading in that chapter, God then says, you cannot see my face, for humans cannot see me and live. I'm yeah. So... <laughs> It's the whole and speaking face-to-face -face thing, okay? I think they are. Picture like Moses, you know, maybe sitting, kneeling on his knees, and God talking, talking to him, but there's no vision here. Mm -hmm. There's no visual representation of God. Mm -hmm. So it's like they're face-to-face, -face, but all Moses can hear is God. He just, he can only hear his voice. So I think there's a face-to-face -face going on without any visual representation. That's how I see it. So commentators call this an anthropomorphism. I think that's the word. Where God doesn't really have a face here. And then also when God hides him in the cleft of the rock, he talks about his hand hiding him. It's not like he really had a hand that went like that. He's just speaking to us in terms that we can understand. So, and we can kind of understand that hiding with a hand. We can understand face-to-face -face conversations, even though we, there wasn't really a face there. So, so that's why I think Moses asked to see God's glory. He wants to see God. He's spent so much time talking with him. He wants to see him. I want to see what you look like. I 
can't really blame him for that question either. Of, Can I please see your glory? And God responds to him by saying, I will let my goodness pass in front of you, but you cannot see my face. Okay, this was cool, you guys. What does, in number six is where it's at. If you want to write down number six, 22 through 27, we're almost out of time, but we, I got to keep going. Oh, good, I have like eight minutes. Uh, write down number six, 22 to 27, okay? Think about this. With Moses is asking to see God's face, okay? What's the, the blessing song? You guys know the lyrics to that? You know the one that we sing? And keep you. What's the next line? Make his face shine upon you. Make his face shine upon you. Yes. I love that song. Yes. That was so good. So, but have you ever thought about what it says? You know, make his face to shine upon you, and yet we can't see his face. That comes from Numbers 6, and where the Lord says, Tell Aaron and his sons, this is how you are to bless the Israelites. You should say to them, May the Lord bless you and protect you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you. What a blessing that would be, right? That was the ultimate blessing, because man cannot see God's face and live. That is the ultimate blessing. Well... What are we waiting for right now? The day that we're going to see God's face and live. 1 Corinthians 13, 12 says, Now we see dimly as in a mirror, but one day we will see face to face. That's 1 Corinthians 13, 12. So what Moses desired, God has promised us. That's cool. That is hope. What Moses desired, what Moses wanted so much and couldn't have, God has promised will happen. It's, that's, that's why that's the ultimate blessing. May God make his face to shine upon you. That is hope. And it's because of Christ's mediation that we will one day see God's glory and we will live. We will actually see it and we will live despite our persistent idolatry that we struggle with, we're going to see his face. That is so Pope-filled right there. Now, it's interesting to me, though, that Moses doesn't tell us at all what he saw. When God's glory passed by, God says he's going to make all his goodness pass in front of him. He doesn't describe that for us at all. He only tells us what God said. He gives us the word that was revealed to him, God's name, I wonder if what Moses actually saw, God's backside, was just even too, like, maybe you couldn't even describe it. You know, maybe it's just even too glorious for words. <clears throat> but he heard God's name proclaimed. If you turn in, well, you can either look at it in your passage or you can look at it in your um, homework. But it's, it's uh, chapter 34, verse 6. <clears throat> Let's just look and see what God proclaimed. The Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin, but he will not leave the guilty unpunished bringing the consequences of the father's iniquity on the children and grandchildren to the third and the fourth generations. 
we don't have a lot of time, so I'm gonna kind of rush through this. I wanted to just hear more from you guys about like, what strikes you about that? Like, that's God's description of his name. And I love that he 